I'd like to thank you for being here this evening, and I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 6, as we'll be spending a good deal of time in this place this evening. Now, we won't be spending as much time as I might normally take in order to teach through this chapter, but I have a responsibility of trying to get to my assignment, which uh, we will do, Lord willing, and do so in a fashion that will enable all of us to have an understanding. That's my goal. The Bible tells us here in John chapter 6 about some amazing circumstances and happenings. But there are things in this chapter as well that are a little difficult and have proven to be difficult as we have dealt with Calvinism based on some parts of this passage, as we have dealt with other issues. Specifically, I've been asked if there is a connection between the Bread of Life sermon and the Communion. And we will certainly try to answer that question as we go through our study here this evening. Now, we need to start with a bit of background and context. The overarching theme of the Gospel of John is eternal life. John 17, verse 3, might easily be the key verse of the entire book. This is eternal life that you may know that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This from the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. At the very beginning of the book, it tells us, in him was life. And later, as John sums up his purpose in writing this gospel, he says that believing you may have life in his name. That's the overarching theme. And it is a major part of John chapter 6. Now, in the book of John, we find that it is organized. It is organized around uh, several I am statements and uh, several signs that we'll be coming to in a bit here. But uh, from what we can see, there are some events that have led up to this Bread of Life discourse, and these events include the, uh, first of all, the disciples are sent on a preaching tour according to Mark chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. This is sometimes called the limited commission, where they are sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Following this, they return, of course, but sometime in this approximate time, Herod also executes John the Baptist. And this is detailed in verses 14 through 29 of Mark chapter 6, how that came about. And then at the end of that passage, the Bible tells us that the disciples have returned to Jesus and they are telling about all the wonderful works that they have done. And it tells us that they were so busy that they didn't even have time to eat. And so Jesus takes them off to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's what this chart is about. What they are basically doing is they are going from this area here where Jesus has made his, his uh, center of operations over to an area that's actually outside the territory of Herod the Tetrarch and in the territory of his brother Philip. This town of Bethsaida is nearby where this miracle that we're going to see early in chapter 6 takes place. The name Bethsaida simply means house of fish or fish town. And that would be appropriate 
for an area that was predominantly devoted to the industry of fishing. But um, as we continue to prosecute this uh, overview of the events that have preceded our chapter, we find that in the beginning of the chapter, we have one of the signs that we have in the book of John, the feeding of the 5,000. And it is an extremely notable miracle. Now, over in the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Kings chapter 4, we have there mention of Elisha feeding 100 men with 20 loaves. And that's remarked as a miracle. This miracle far surpasses that. And at the beginning of that chapter, what we actually find is that Jesus tests one of his disciples, uh, Philip in particular, by asking him a question. The Bible tells us that uh, he asked Philip, seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. I think everything that unfolds in this chapter uh, Jesus does by design, because something very significant is taking place here. It's not what some of your modern megachurch pastors would want, but it was what the Lord wanted. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He's going to deflect those um, fair-weather disciples who are in it for the bread and the fishes, and he's going to have a more dedicated and understanding core of disciples who are going to stick with him through the very difficult days ahead. Now, this is the beginning of the third year of his ministry. And if you're going through a study of the life of Christ, or if you're looking at a harmony of the life of Christ in particular, what you will find is that this is called the year of opposition. Back in John chapter 5, Jesus has been in Jerusalem, and as a result of healing the infirm man at the pool of Bethesda, he has incurred the wrath of the Jerusalem establishment because he told the man to take up his bed and walk, but it was the Sabbath. This isn't the only time Jesus gets in trouble for telling someone to do something on the Sabbath or for healing on the Sabbath. But this leads to a discussion with the Jewish leadership there, in which Jesus points out the witnesses that ought to be taken seriously who testify to the fact that he is the Messiah of God. And what we have there, very, very simply, is that fivefold witness at the end of chapter 5 that tells us very clearly that uh, these men are not understanding Jesus' mission, and as a result of that, they are going to be turning against him. Now Jesus is in Galilee, and we, saw, we find here a like thing is going to happen. Now there are some key terms and phrases that we will see throughout our study. And one of these is this one, most assuredly, or verily, verily, in the King James Version. Amen, amen, if you're looking in the, it's the Aramaic word, amen, that uh, means verily or truly or most assuredly as the New King James translators have rendered it. These four statements that follow most assuredly are, you might say, the pegs on which this entire discourse hangs. And what we have here is Jesus making it very clear that he is going to uh, uh, 
institute what is not what the Jewish people were expecting of their Messiah. Now, earlier, Shahi has made some statements about uh, what the Jewish people were expecting, that there really wasn't a lot of unanimity, uh, unanimity that the people out there at Qumran community had different views from what many people had. But I think it's pretty well established, and this can be seen in the history of Josephus. It can be seen in the Lord's interaction here, that there was an element of the Jewish population that saw their Messiah as that warrior king, as the one who was going to supplant Rome and put Israel in the place, only it would be much more beneficent rule than the Romans were uh, exercising over the world. And uh, they believed that it would incorporate the salvation of God. But that would be by turning the world Jewish and not by, well, what we know as the gospel of Jesus Christ, which embraced both Jew and Gentile. So, uh, we're going to start out here in verse 22. On the following day, when the people who were... This, this is after two notable miracles. There's the feeding of the 5,000, which got their attention in such a way that there in verse 14 and 15, it tells us... In fact, I just need to go... Go read it. But in verses 14 and 15, it tells us after the miracle of the loaves and fish, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, one thing the children of Israel understood was that there was going to arise a prophet like Moses, a law-giving prophet, and they understood this from Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. This is the prophet. We found him. Uh, he is feeding us like Moses fed us with the manna that came from heaven. And then it tells us in verse 15, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed alone to the mountain by himself. Now, in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, and Mark 6, verse 45, the parallel passages, what we find there is that Jesus made his disciples get in the boat to head over the sea. He knew he was sending them into a storm. Sometimes, when we follow the Lord's will, we are sent into storms. But he knew he was going to rescue them as well. But he wants to get them away from there. And he needs to nip this in the bud. These people are not interested in setting up the kind of kingdom that Jesus and heaven is interested in setting up. They think, and there's a fever pitch here. All the commentators seem to agree on this. The, the death of John, who was a very popular prophet. Uh, the time of the Passover is near. There's always going to be danger in Jerusalem during Passover because from time to time, there were figures who arose who claimed to be the Messiah, who tried to rally the troops, as it were, and to uh, force the issue, and eventually they succeeded. In 66, they're going to succeed, and they're going to rebel against Rome, and that, of course, is going to be the destruction of the Jewish commonwealth. But now these people 
after all of these events, uh, Jesus passes the night or part of the night on the mountain and then goes out to help the struggling disciples on the, on the sea during the storm. And then they come to the other side. These people have no idea how Jesus has got away from them. But he has made sure to do so because he wants to nip their plans in the bud. And so they follow. Some of them take transit but on boats from Tiberias. And it tells us that they come seeking Jesus there in verse 20, 24. And when they found him on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? As if they are highly interested in finding out more about his program. As McGarvey said, they did not seek Jesus because they saw in him a divine friend who could satisfy the deep needs of the soul, but as a wonder worker who could fill their bellies with food as the occasion demanded. Now what's going to happen is, unlike some modern preachers in the megachurches, some churches that are seeker-friendly, as they say, these seekers are going to hear a sermon that's actually going to turn several of them off when it comes to their relationship with Jesus. The Bible says in verse 66 of this chapter, many of his disciples went back and followed him no more. It's the most successful unsuccessful sermon ever. Normally, when we preach to people, we want to uh, try to get them in. We, we want them to, to try to uh, come in and fall in line and do those things that will lead to eternal life. But now Jesus is winnowing the wheat from the chaff here. And these people are going to hear a sermon that is what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. So, Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Now, here's an admonition that you and I need to hear today. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures unto eternal life or everlasting life. Far too many times, this is true of the church in our country Maybe not so much in some of the foreign lands where poverty still is the rule of the day. We are far too concerned about our 401k plans. We are far too concerned about success in academics and in all of the other affairs of life that minister to a comfortable life. We are very interested in this food, in this world. But we need to be interested in that spiritual food that Jesus can provide. Now, Jesus preached this sermon in the synagogue at Capernaum. may not have been on the Sabbath, but it was preached in the synagogue at Capernaum. And McGarvey calls this a disturbing sermon, and it was. You can tell from the reaction of the people as they progressively go to eventually murmuring and then to actually quarreling a war of words between different elements in the audience. It seems like some were in sympathy with what Jesus was teaching. Obviously, the disciples would be. But there were others who were not. And Jesus just wasn't the Messiah that they were looking for. Interestingly, the synagogue at Capernaum, which according to Luke chapter 7, was built by that Roman centurion who had won such a favorable opinion from the Jewish people because he loved the Jewish people, and he had built them a synagogue. And uh, he was a man who was seeking Jesus' help for a servant who was ill, and that servant was healed. So 
In this synagogue that has been uncovered, there are actually a part of the decoration of the synagogue, pots of manna. Uh, and this was to remind people about the feeding of manna in the wilderness. Now, in this chapter, there are going to be allusions to that story about the, the giving of the manna, Exodus chapter 16, and some allusions as well to Exodus chapter 12, which was the institution of the Passover. Now, what we find then is that these people ask the question after Jesus has made this statement, what must we do to work the works of God? Now, that again is a good question. Um, seeking Jesus is a good thing, although Jesus nailed them for seeking him out of the wrong motives. But now they ask a good question. I think it's like the question that the, that the uh, Philippian jailer asked when he said, what must I do to be saved? And it's like the question that Saul of Tarsus asked, Lord, what shall I do? When people recognize their need, they will ask, what do I do? to address this situation. But sometimes the question is not asked sincerely, or they don't like the answer when they get it. And the answer that Jesus is going to give is not going to be very much at all to their liking. So, Jesus tells them in no uncertain terms that they must believe in Him whom He sent. Now, all through this sermon, he's going to be talking about the bread that has come down from heaven. Now, they're going to understand what this is talking about. It's going to be talking about the fact that Jesus has come down from heaven. Have you got my time? Well, you better because I forgot to hit the timer. Um, how much time have I got? 27 minutes. 27 minutes. All right. Let's talk briefly about the nature of faith. Faith is not just assent. It includes that. But it also includes trust. It includes allegiance. And it includes obedience. If you ever want a quick way to teach someone what saving faith is, just go to Hebrews 11, verse 8. The first four words. By faith, Abraham obeyed. That says it all. Now, there's much more that could be said, but obviously, I have to hasten on. You can see there are several scriptural references that would help you in answering any questions someone might have about that. So, uh, the, these people then ask, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you that bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, it seems that the situation that is in these, this audience's mind is something like this. Okay, Moses fed millions of people for 40 years with manna. What are you going to do to beat that? <laughs> if, you're the, if you're the prophet, the greater prophet, a greater Moses, who has come in Moses' place, remember, that's the conclusion they've come to earlier. 
This is the prophet that was to come into the world. When they saw the miracle of the loaves and fishes, where a group of 5,000 men plus women and children were fed by the equivalent, uh, it's been calculated it would take five boxcar loads of food to feed that kind of multitude. That kind of multitude. Okay, top Moses. Moses didn't do that. God did. And interestingly, whenever you read about the manna in the Old Testament, both in Exodus 16 and also in passages like Nehemiah 15, which may be that they are quoting to Jesus, it's always attached to their failure. What happened in Exodus 16? They were told to gather the manna day by day. Only on the Friday, they were together twice as much. And they were to trust God to give them the manna day by day. But some tried to store it up for the next day, and it stank. It bred worms. They were disobedient. And that angered Moses, and it angered God. And then on the Sabbath day, some went out looking for manna, despite the fact that they had been told not to do that. So there's the theme, the constantly disobedient children of Israel. And in Nehemiah, where Nehemiah is talking about this gift of manna, he says there in verse 15, it's not actually Nehemiah, it's a course of Levite singers who are praising God. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, Nehemiah 9 verse 15, and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst. But they and our fathers acted proudly, verse 16, hardened their necks and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. So simply put, uh, that manna experience wasn't necessarily throwing nothing but glory on to Israel. So this phrase comes down or coming down occurs several times, seven times in fact, in this discourse. What Jesus is doing is he's talking about himself, his mission, the one who has come to uh, bring the true manna, the true bread. He is the bread of life. And this is referring to a spiritual reality, not a meal, which is what these pe people seem to have been looking at. Now, here's where we need to talk a little bit about figurative language. Dungan wrote a book on hermeneutics back in the 1800s that still, I think, can be recommended as a good course on the subject of hermeneutics. About figurative language, he says, all words are to be understood in their literal sense, unless the evident meaning of the context forbids. Figures are the exception, literal language the rule. Hence, we are not to regard anything as figurative until we feel compelled to do so by the evident import of the passage. And then we find that there are, is a lot of figurative language in the scriptures. Figurative language builds in emotion and memorability to the words of the Bible. If it was simply a prosaic description of everything, that might not be so striking or memorable. But when Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep, when Jesus says, I am the true vine, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, those are striking figures of speech that communicate important concepts to us. We can see all flesh is as grass. Well, what is it about flesh that is like grass? Well, the grass withers and the flower fades. And that's the way human life is. 
All flesh is as grass, quoted from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 6, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Here's an example of figurative language, and looking at this, we see the word walks, one of the most common activities in life. And yet it is used over and over in the scriptures to talk about a way of life. We're walking in the light or we're walking in darkness. We're living in the light or we're living in darkness. Uh, those are very striking figurative images. The Bible tells us the church was walking in the fear of the Lord and uh, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and they were multiplied. Eating and drinking is one of these metaphors, one of these uh, figurative expressions that is so common that it is used not only in the Bible, but in the rabbinical writings, the Talmud and others, in the Jewish and Christian devotional literature. It is used to talk about um, ingesting and digesting and bringing into your life, into your existence, important things. So, having that short course on figurative language, we can understand the metaphor better by thinking of it in terms of ourselves. There are, there's an inner man and there is an outer man. The inner man is going to continue growing day by day. The outer man is perishing, as the Apostle Paul says over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. The outer man is going to perish. And all the food that is given to him, and lots of people today are interested in eating very well and making sure that their diets are just exactly what they ought to be to maximize their longevity. But they're still going to die, just like those people that ate manna in the wilderness eventually died. But this food that Jesus is going to talk about is going to minister to eternal life. Since eating and drinking are essential to sustain life, they are suitable figures for what is essential to spiritual life. But the metaphors are used of the wicked as well. For example, in Proverbs 4 and verse 17, they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence to their soul's destruction. But the Bible says about the righteous, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And in Proverbs, wisdom invites to her feast. Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. And so this imagery is a part of the knowledge of the Jewish people. And when Jesus starts talking about eating and drinking, then they're going to understand what he is talking about. So let's move on. And uh, Jesus says, beginning there in verse 34, uh, I am the bread of life. And of course, when he tells them that he is the bread of life, they say, Lord, give us this bread always. Now in John chapter 4, the woman at the well in Samaria, when she heard about this living water of which Jesus spoke, she wanted him to give her that water always. Now the issue or the outcome was far different in her case. Eventually she goes into the city and says, I met a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Messiah? And they go and investigate, and they eventually come to realize, even better than she could have told them, that he is the Messiah. In this case, these people are going to turn away. For the most part, they are going to turn away from Jesus. They are not going to hearken to him. 
Jesus says, He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Now, there are some passages in here that certainly intersect with our discussions with people known as Calvinists. And I just don't have the time to be able to deal with those tonight, at least not now, maybe in the question and answers. If you want some more light about that, I'd be glad to help you out with that. But uh, I really must be hastening on. Jesus says that I have come down from heaven. This is a claim of deity. Now, there are modernist scholars who will tell you that in the Gospel of John, Jesus never claims to be deity. And we can prove that to be false over and over again. In particular, in John chapter 8, the Jews are actually going to take up stones to stone him because he uses the name that God revealed himself to Moses by in Exodus chapter 3, I am. He uses it for himself when he says, before Abraham was, I am. So over and over, Jesus makes this claim, but it is simply rebuffed and not believed by many of these people. Now remember, one of the overarching themes is that he is going to give life. He's going to raise up those who uh, partake of him on the last day. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. This phrase is going to be repeated several times more. Well, when this happens, there starts to be some murmuring and complaining. And I think that this sort of dovetails with what we read about the children of Israel in the wilderness. Their constant murmuring and complaining certainly was displeasing to God. And uh, we find in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, where the Apostle Paul actually says, Neither murmur ye as some of them murmured, and in one day they were destroyed. There were many who were destroyed of the destroyer. Do all things without complaining and murmuring. But these people are murmuring, and as a result of this, Jesus, of course, is not pleased. He actually says, murmur not among yourselves, there in verse 43. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is not Calvinism, again, but he explains himself. It is written in the prophets, and this is a quotation from Isaiah 54 and verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great will be the peace of your children. It's, he says there, no one can come to the Father unless the Father, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, how did these people hear and learn from the Father? Well, one way that they learned from the Father was through the law. Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 through 25 tells us that the law was the schoolmaster or the tutor that was to bring Israel to Christ. And once accomplishing that, then the tutor would disappear from the scene and the gospel of Christ or Christ would prevail. This is that moment of crisis. And there were others, of course, where people are given that decision are they going to let go of the tutor or are they simply going to continue to cling to the tutor who was supposed to bring them to Christ or not? 
Jesus then says, beginning at verse 46, not that everyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the whole world. Now there's been a progression from food to bread and now to flesh in this series of revelations that Jesus is giving concerning himself. And so he's going to begin talking now about one of the central facts of the gospel. And you and I can see this from a better vantage than those people could. Rather than simply accepting it by faith and trusting that their understanding would eventually be enlightened, uh, they, their, their attitude was, this is hard to listen to. And they went back and they followed him no more. The hardness does not seem to be difficulty in understanding. It was difficulty in obeying. You know, that's the way it is with some parts of God's word. Repentance, for example. It's an easy concept to understand. It's a difficult concept to execute in our lives. And that's the way it is when it comes to imbibing and partaking of Christ. You know, it's easy to eat a physical meal. I don't have, you know, we had a meal down there just a bit ago. And my body's taken over. And without me actually being involved in it in any way, uh, the digestion is taking place. The nutrients are being broken down and fed through my bloodstream to wherever the muscles and other parts of my body need it for fuel. But when I partake of the bread of life, when I eat the bread of life, when I eat and drink the flesh and the blood of the Savior, that is intentional. That involves my mind making a decision to do that and to ingest and digest Him. And the way we do that, as is clear when we get to the end of this chapter, is by His words. Well, let's hurry on. How much time have I got? Ten minutes. Well, there's a, a distant possibility I may be able to pull this off. Okay. If anyone eats of this bread... If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. There's that overarching theme of the book. The Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves. That means um, there was a war of words going on at this time. And this war of words is over, what does he mean by he's going to give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, there have been many in the history of Christianity. If you look into church history, uh, you certainly see this in Catholicism, and in Lutheranism, and in Many of the denominations, they draw a straight line from this to the communion. 
I would argue for a much larger view than that, and I'll have more to say about that directly. Eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Lord Jesus certainly includes a communion because that was something that he commanded to be done in remembrance of his self-sacrifice on the cross. But in that self-sacrifice on the cross, Jesus gave us a means to be reconciled to the Father. That's life. That's gospel obedience. And he also gave us a means to continue to abide in him. That's living faithfully unto death. Now, one thing that occurred to me over and over as I studied through all this, you can make it pretty difficult if you want to, but really it's pretty simple and straightforward. The Word of God wasn't given and it wasn't originally preached to the doctors of theology. In fact, most of them there in Jerusalem rejected Jesus. It was plain, simple, ordinary folk who understood what it meant to eat and drink something. If the something was not physical food, then there was something that needed to be noted about whatever it was they were eating, drinking, like the wicked, you know, eating violence and, or drinking violence and, and uh, eating uh, violence. Well, I can't remember the exact wording from Proverbs chapter 4 over there, but you get the idea. Or it was something like hungering and thirsting after righteousness. So they understood that. At least some of them did. But when the mass of the crowd understood they weren't going to get more free food, then they went back and followed him no more. And of course, I do believe that they perceived that Jesus was not the Messiah, at least that they expected. Some commentators believe it is the zealots who are leading the argument with Jesus here. And the zealots were a party. Uh, they were kind of partly or not partly, largely to blame for the events that transpired in AD 66 through 70, because they wanted to establish by violence the superiority of an Israelite kingdom over the Romans. But uh, Jesus says, uh, let's see where I'm at here. Yeah, I'm at the right place. My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Now there's something interesting about this passage. Well, I need to back up just a little bit. Uh, this word here, Eat is the Greek word phago, P-H-A-G-O. I think it's part of the word esophagus today. There's another word, though, that appears throughout the rest of the passage. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up the last day. My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And then later in verses 57 and 58 as well. That's a different word, trogo, T-R-O-G-O. And I understand that it means to chew over something, to gnaw. Now, sometimes I have yogurt for breakfast. I don't chew yogurt. I just go straight down. I eat it. But now if I have a piece of uh, bacon for breakfast or steak, I got to chew that over. Now, in our own English language, we have this uh, metaphorical concept of chewing something over. I gotta, I gotta chew on that for a while. In other words, I gotta think, I gotta ruminate about that. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about heavy thinking about the things that he has to teach, that he has to give us. And uh, that I think is the primary focus of his words. Over there in uh, 
verses 57 through 58. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. Now, because my time is running away, how much time have I got? Five minutes. Okay. Um, I could quote from several different sources that indicate, uh, first of all, a Catholic or a sacramental view of the words of Jesus here. And by sacramental, I mean they attach efficacy to the institution of the Eucharist, and not just that, but to several other sacraments that are a part of the theological package of the Catholic Church. Uh, partaking in these things is efficacious in and of itself. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about transubstantiation if I have time. But uh, as I cast about looking for a good way to explain this, I came across something that was written by a fellow who always had a phenomenal ability of being able to put difficult ideas in simple language that people could understand. Uh, I always envied him, and I envy others who seem to have this. Shahe gave us a wonderful demonstration of that in the earlier talk this evening. In a book entitled, If You Ask Me, by our late lamented brother, Ronnie Wade, he dealt with a question about this very passage. Does John 6, verse 53 through 56, refer to the Lord's Supper? Now, I want to be clear, I'm not just making an appeal to authority. I've already established my position is to eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood is something much broader than the communion. But, John, but uh, Ronnie says it so well. The phrase, eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, is a Hebrew idiom which denotes the operation of the mind in receiving, understanding, and applying doctrine or instructions of any kind. Jesus points out that just as the body lives temporally by eating bread, so the new life is nourished by feeding upon Christ in our hearts by faith. The idea is expressed, the idea expressed is, except you feed on Christ in your hearts and partake of His life, you have no life in you. We accept the bread of life, our crucified Lord, by faith and obedience to His teachings. And that includes the communion. In many of our interactions with the denominational and religious world, it, it resolve, revolves around the communion. Because that is a point that is very much at dispute between us. We believe that many of the people in the religious world are in error. But that is not the sum and substance of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, as Jesus is using the terms. It means imbibing his life, his views, his words. To put it in very simple and practical terms, if you're not reading the Bible, if you're not listening to faithful gospel preaching, if you're not meditating upon the things that are found in God's Word and learning more about your Lord through the Gospels, through the writings of the Apostles, then you're not feeding on the Lord of life as you ought to. Ronnie goes on. Thus, whoever by faith trusts in the death of Christ and is baptized into his death spiritually partakes of his body and blood. When does one receive spiritual life? When he is born again. And when is one born again? When he is obedient to the gospel. If one is baptized on Monday night, that person has spiritual life at that moment. 
He does not have to wait until the next uh, Sunday when he communes to have spiritual life. If he did and died before Sunday, he would be lost. He has some other things to say. But uh, I think that captures the gist of it. That's what I hope to communicate. That's what I intend to defend because I believe that is correct. Now, there are many others that could be looked at in terms of differing views. But the consensus seems to be among Catholic, Lutheran, and a few Church of Christ people, there is a view that this is, you can kind of draw a straight line from here to the communion service or to the Lord's Supper. But others, like myself, believe that that is certainly a part of a bigger whole, which as we learn about and live out the example and the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, then we are, to use that metaphor, eating of his flesh, and drinking of his blood. We are being, just as physical food sustains our physical man, this is spiritual food to sustain our spiritual man. I think I'll bring it to a close right there.